0: So these days you can't really get away with not using a computer, um, and if you don't know how to type, you're kind of in trouble, <laughs> uh, especially in the workplace. Well I learned to type by playing a, an amazing game at school called the Oregon Trail. Anyone else? Oregon Trail? Anyone? Yes! Such a good game. I knew, I knew you would love it. Black screen, green symbols linked together to make graphics. It was incredible. Well, um, I learned to type using the Oregon Trail in middle school. And it's this game where you start at the general store, and you stock up on supplies. Because you have to get your family, yourself, a team of animals, and a wagon full of supplies across the American frontier to Oregon. It's a several thousand mile journey, and it is dangerous. Now, you have to cross the shadeless prairies, These huge, rapidly flowing rivers, with your wagon, yes, oh yes, with your wagon, and you have to go over the Rocky Mountains. No easy feat. Now, I played this game a lot, and I loved playing it, but I only won a few times, and winning is living, right? (laughs) Winning is surviving the Oregon Trail. Didn't live all that much, didn't win the game much, but I really enjoyed it. It was adventurous, and it was dangerous, and there was risk, and, you know, I was sitting peacefully in my little chair. I wasn't really going to die. But I never seemed to have the right amount of supplies or combination of supplies that I needed to survive whatever catastrophes came my way. But really, in the mid-1800s, half a million people attempted the trip across the American frontier, and 50,000 of them died along the way. Most of them walked it barefoot because they couldn't afford shoes. And they died. Uh, dr- they drowned in rivers along the way. They got trampled by their own wagons. And some were killed by lightning and apple-sized hail. But the most common causes of death on the American frontier were cholera, wound infection, and accidental gunshots. No matter how prepared the pioneers were when they began their journey, just like when I began the Oregon Trail, they knew their lives would be at risk. But their desire for land and opportunity gave them the courage that they needed to push west, despite all these dangers. Now, the Bible is full of just stories of, that are just as epic and adventurous and dangerous as the story of the Oregon Trail. We remember that Abraham crossed a huge desert. He went, walked thousands of miles with his whole family. And along the way, he was threatened by foreign kings and hostile natives. And then Moses and the Israelites, remember they spent 40 years wandering around in a desert that had no natural resources of food and water. Even when they settled in the promised land, even their travel was risky. Remember the story that we call the Good Samaritan? It's in Luke 10, and it's the story where a man is found in the road, beaten, robbed, and left for dead. That was just on a, a, really, a day's walk from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was about 15 miles. When God's people settled in the Promised Land, they were required to travel to Jerusalem three times a year for certain religious festivals. There is a group of 14 psalms, starting with Psalm 120, called the Psalms of Ascent. And these are songs and prayers that tell the story of the Jews' pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Psalm 121 is perhaps the most well-known to all of us because uh, the the musical The Sound of Music and the song Climb Every Mountain made this, this psalm famous. Well, even though it's familiar to a lot of us, I think that you will be surprised at the amount of danger and at the amount of encouragement that you may have missed before. So I want us to dig into Psalm 121. That's our text for this morning. I'm going to read it to you from the New Revised Standard Version, and if you have the U Version on your phone or whatever, it doesn't often have the New Revised Standard Version, so it's printed in your bulletin, um, in the insert, if you want to follow along. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. There it is. The scene is set. A Jewish pilgrim is about to travel to Jerusalem for a religious festival. Two things are very, very obvious in this psalm. First, there are many dangers on the way to Jerusalem. And second, the pilgrim has complete confidence to take on this dangerous journey. Danger and confidence. Let's go through them and compile a list. The pilgrim begins his list of dangers to the journey to Jerusalem right away. The phrase, I lift up my eyes to the hills, is actually a major red flag. It's hard for us to see as modern readers, because what we, we need to know stuff about Jerusalem and about the historical context. Jerusalem is in the center of a geographical region called the hill country, This is an area of steep hills and deep valleys that are really close together. So if you looked at the hill country from the air, from a helicopter, it would look like the backs of 100 camels all huddled together. The topography makes this the perfect hunting ground for thieves. Lots of places to hide and many ways to escape. Also, the hilltops were where non-Jews set up altars to the fertility gods. On the altars, they made sacrifices to gods like Baal, who we read about in the Old Testament. Sometimes they even sacrificed their children or had orgies on these high places. These were perverted attempts to appease the fertility gods and secure the blessing of a good crop. No Jewish pilgrim could go to Jerusalem Without going through the hill country. And if that wasn't bad enough, if the list of threats, it just keeps growing. In verse three, where it says, He will not let your foot be moved, this can also be translated shake or slip. Obviously, when your destination is a day or more's walk away, and your only transportation is, if you're lucky, a donkey, but usually your own two feet, uh, there's a potential to fall. There's a potential for accidents. If it were me, I think um, as faithful as I might have been if I lived then, I I might choose to stay home. I'm not what you would call coordinated. My mom actually says that I can't walk and chew ice at the same time. But uh, I actually spent a summer semester in Israel studying. And I was jogging up some ancient limestone stairs and I misjudged a step they're not you know when they're ancient they're not cut like nine inches nine inches you know like we have stairs today they're all all kinds of measurements so I tripped and I took a nose dive. well I was going up the stairs which is good because my momentum stopped so I took a nose dive. thankfully for my nose my knee hit first not so thankfully for my knee um, it hit right on the edge of the limestone stair and if you know Anything about limestone, it has no give. So I am on the ground, on these stairs. My knee is on fire. I'm in so much pain I can't breathe. So once I finally, you know, get to a good place, I'm still in pain, I have to keep going up the stairs. So I get up and I keep walking and I trip again, (laughs) not a minute later, and I land on this same knee. One knee surgery and six months of physical therapy taught me that even a simple trip upstairs can be dangerous. So imagine walking miles and miles over the hills and down the valleys to get to a place you have to go, you could be in an accident. Verse 6 lists the last two dangers that face the pilgrims, the sun and the moon. Like in our Arizona desert, the promised land lacked shade trees. We can't really count on the Palo Verde and the olive tree to really give us that much shade. Now, we've all seen those, uh, those uh, summer news reports where the tourists, they get stuck up on camelback or the superstitions, and they have to go get them with a helicopter because they're lost, or they're injured, or they're dehydrated. Desert people know that the sun is no joke. If you're in it too long, you're vulnerable to exhaustion and heat stroke. That's just the way it goes. But in biblical times, it wasn't just the sun that was dangerous. The people in this region also thought that the moon had harmful influences. Folklore said that the moon god caused disastrous events. And the so-called medical experts of the day, whoever they were, um, they believed that the moon was the cause of fever and leprosy. Thebes, pagan worship, accidents, exhaustion, heat stroke, disasters, fever, and leprosy. Who is ready to sign up for a walk to Jerusalem? Anyone? Well, it makes so much sense then that the writer of Psalm 121, his first question is, from where will my help come? So we've cataloged all the dangers. Now let's feast on the good part. Let's focus on the pilgrim's confidence, which is strung throughout the psalm. The pilgrim gives a quick response to his own question. He says, my help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. As we look carefully throughout the psalm, we will learn this, that God's presence and character are the source of the pilgrim's confidence. The pilgrim declares the Lord as his help. There are 21 occurrences of this word help or helper in the Old Testament, and almost every single one of them speaks of the powerful, matchless help of God for the people that he loves. To be our help, that is part of God's character, and it's the reason why the pilgrim is so confident. Now, we know that the Psalms are songs, but they're not just songs. They're also poetry, right? The biblical poets use certain literary devices to pack meaning into these really tight phrases. For example, the phrase heaven and earth sounds pretty straightforward, but there's a lot more meaning that's conveyed in these three words than we read. This is a poetic device called a merism, where the writer uses opposites or extremes, and by implication, he means everything in between the heavens and earth. So, when the pilgrim calls God the maker of heaven and earth, he's giving God credit for making everything between the sky and the ground. Should a pilgrim be fearful of powerless fertility gods when he or she belongs to the creator of everything that I can see? Should the pilgrim who worships the creator cancel a trip because of the threat of robbery or physical harm? The writer of Psalm 121 thinks not. Instead of feeling helpless, he has confidence in his helper. Listen to his words of assurance in verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Notice that the voice changes here from first person to third person. It's like the pilgrim has turned to his neighbor Now his confidence for the journey is his neighbor's assurance that her foot will not slip on her journey. The pilgrim's confidence rests on the identity and character of the Lord, the creator, his helper. In verse 3, he adds a new dimension to his understanding of God. He calls God, he who keeps you. In verse 5, the pilgrim declares, the Lord is your keeper. And this is like the holy eardrum-popping crescendo of the whole psalm. The Lord is your keeper. Everything in this psalm builds up to the image of God as keeper. The six occurrences of keep and keeper in this psalm are from the same root, meaning keep, guard, or watch. These verses reveal that God is an alert helper who will not doze off or sleep while his pilgrims are traveling. Most translations vary this word uh, in, their, in their English versions, but in Hebrew it is one root and one idea. Translations like the NIV uh, use the language of watch, um, and then they mix it up. But I think that that actually puts us modern readers in danger of misunderstanding the character of God. We just don't get the depth and the richness of it. Because think of the context in which the, we use the word, w- the word watch today. If, if, you know, some of us will say, I'm going to go home and watch some football. Or I love watching The Walking Dead or, you know, whatever show that you love to watch. And when we watch these things, we're on our tablets and our phones and we're surfing the internet and Facebook, and as we know it, we can watch something and not be very attentive or really that interested. This meaning is far too passive for what's happening in Psalm 121. When it says that God is your keeper, picture someone who watches over a child, Uh, When a good babysitter or a parent is watching their child, they are not passive. I sat along the back wall during our recent kids' production of A Mouse's Tale. And Scott and Lisa Bollinger, who usually come to first service, were sitting in the back row of the row seats. And I had a great time watching them watch this, because they weren't really watching. Um, They have a -a one-and-a-half-year-old son named Nicky. And Nicky was constantly leaving their laps And walking up and down this aisle and then the back row of seats on the right was open and so he was crawling up on the seats and he was going back and forth and then trying to jump off. And Scott and Lisa never sat down unless he was in their laps because they had to get up and follow him. They had to keep him from jumping off the seats. They had to keep him from coming up here. They were constantly with him. They were alert to where Nicky was and what he was doing. They were always within reach, always following his steps, ready to protect him from harm and keep him out of mischief. The pilgrim of Psalm 121 is trying to convey that kind of keeping. That's how he sees and knows the Lord, like a loving parent who diligently watches their child, or like a good shepherd who will go after a single lost sheep. And if that's not enough, to reassure these concerned travelers, the pilgrim uses God's personal name five times in the psalm. This is also something that often gets lost in translation. When you see the word Lord in the scripture in all capital letters, it's a substitution for the personal name of God, and that name is Yahweh. God didn't just share his personal name with us so we would know what to call him. Sharing his name was a sign of intimacy and commitment on God's part. Letting people know who he was, revealing not not only his name, but his character and his power. Literally, Yahweh means I am, as many of us know, but the word also conveys a sense of relational sense that God is with and for. That's what Yahweh means. I am with and for. And God is with and for his covenant people, Israel, to whom he gave his name. And he's also with and for individuals who claim him, who belong to him. Yahweh, by his very nature, is a present and active God. No one knew this better than Moses. Now today, maybe sometime later, take a couple minutes to read Exodus 3 Um, especially verses 10 through 14, because this is where God appears to Moses in a burning bush. It's a very familiar story. God comes to Moses, and he shares his name with him. God then instructs Moses to use this name when he goes and confronts the Israelites and then Pharaoh. And Moses obeys, and by claiming the name of Yahweh, Moses signals the beginning of ten plagues, that bring Pharaoh to his knees and lead to the freedom of the Israelites. Yahweh is with and for his people. He is not passive. Though he is the creator, he is also personal. And though personal, he is also holy and all-powerful. Claiming the name of Yahweh is perhaps the most powerful act in the world, which is why Revering the name of God is one of the commandments. The early Jews took the name of God so seriously that they believed you could only honor this name completely by not mentioning it at all. And so they didn't. And in their scriptures, they started substituting in another word, which is we've inherited that tradition wherever you see Lord in all caps. It's the personal name of God. So I want you to take your sermon notes and flip over to the backside from the NRSV, which is the New Revised Standard Version, to Corey's New Revised Standard Version. And don't worry, nothing crazy happens between the two. I've simply preserved for you the personal use of Yahweh, and he will keep you, the the word keeper in keeping. So you'll see this. I've kind of bolded it and I've underlined it. And I want you to understand that this is not useless redundancy. This is not bad poetry. This is the poet setting up markers of God's faithfulness. He will keep you. He who keeps you will keep Israel. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh will keep you. This is how constant God is to his beloved people. This is how intimately he cares for his pilgrims. With these words, with this short eight-verse psalm, the pilgrim is saying, you know what, you don't need to fear the dangers of the journey because the one who keeps you is Yahweh, the God who is with and for you, the creator of everything you can see, the one who keeps with your steps, the one who is always alert and active on your behalf. Shouldn't they be encouraged? And if that wasn't enough, the pilgrim poet goes on to say that Yahweh is your shade at your right hand. Another beautiful image of God. He is our shade. The pilgrim assures his friends that Yahweh will keep them from any threat of heat stroke, fever, and leprosy. Again, we see opposites in this verse, this time day and night. And now that we know a little bit about biblical poetry, we know that when he says day and night, he's not just talking about those times, he's saying that it's not noon, midnight, dawn, or dusk, that Yahweh will not shade the pilgrim. The last two verses of Psalm 121 are like the finale of a song, expanding from four to eight and maybe even 12-part harmony. depends on how many people we have in the choir We can make it even bigger. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. Do you see what the pilgrim has done with these last two verses? He has left no wiggle room in God's ability to keep his people. With his strongest voice, he says, there is no form of evil, no threat or danger that will be able to snatch the pilgrim from his hand. There is never a time when Yahweh will not keep his people. Because the pilgrim knows who Yahweh is, he has complete confidence to travel to Jerusalem. That reminds me of the main point of our recent sermon series on 2 Corinthians, where we learned that if you know who you are, you'll know what to do. Hey, you guys are listening. Fantastic. Well, the writer of this psalm is saying something very similar. He's saying, if you know whose you are, you'll know what to do. Thousands of years have passed since these psalms were written and sung, and few of us will ever make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, Because Jesus has come and fulfilled the law and the prophets, we're no longer required to go there to worship God three times a year. But this is still a psalm for us. You've heard uh, people refer to their spiritual lives as a journey. Has everyone heard this language? It's a metaphor that we use to help us make sense of the Christian life or just life in general. The Bible is full of imagery and metaphor of pilgrimage and journey. Did you know that before um, the term Christian was used, the people who followed Christ were called people of the way. People of the way. I love that now our pilgrimage is the way of jesus christ and it's a daily one our path is to follow jesus taking steps to become more like him navigating our way through the complexities and dangers of our daily lives as we're led by the spirit we are pilgrims on a daily journey in god's presence like our spiritual ancestors our way has many dangers and threats. It would be foolish of me to tell you and foolish of you to believe that the Christian life is always safe and sweet. This pilgrimage we are on is a dangerous one. We lose our jobs. We are in car accidents. We're sued. We're diagnosed with diseases. Our loved ones die. We suffer from depression, doubt, and fear. We're tempted by things like addiction, lust, and materialism, and the list can go on and on and on. We are at risk every moment of every day, but all of that is like dust next to the fact that Yahweh is our keeper. If you cannot reconcile um, the dangers that you face in your life with the fact that God is good, then perhaps you've bought into a simplistic view of a blessed life. You see, many Christians today, I think, Believe that being blessed by God means that you have or achieve stuff like health and wealth and status or anything having to do with any of those categories. A high school diploma, a college degree, a steady job with good benefits, a loving marriage, healthy, obedient children, a home, deep friendships, I could keep going. Aren't these often the markers by which we evaluate whether or not God has blessed us? But then some of us have a lot of this stuff. And how many of you who have some of these things have this profound sense that something that you're lacking, that you need more, that something is missing? The truth is that you can have none of the things I listed or the things that you've listed in your head and be blessed And that's because being blessed isn't about outward achievements or the accumulation of stuff, and it's really not even about inward feelings of satisfaction with your life. Being blessed, fundamentally, is about living in the presence of God. If you've committed your life to Jesus, then you are blessed because God is with you now and forever. Whatever your struggles, there is really no need to fear Instead, you can have confidence to pilgrimage like our ancestor in Psalm 121. Your confidence to journey through each day rests on the fact that Yahweh is your keeper. Now I know that this is one of those things that's a lot easier said than done. And that's why it belongs in that strange, mysterious, and wonderful category we call faith. I would not stand up here and preach this message... About being confident and brave in the face of danger, if I didn't know something of it myself. So I am going to share my testimony, part of my testimony with you, and it goes like this: four two hundred eleven one No, this is not a winning lottery ticket. So don't go use that. Um, this is kind of my pilgrimage of the last couple of years, uh, kind of drizzled down into just a couple of numbers. Four years ago, I felt God calling me to leave campus ministry. Uh, I'd been doing that six years and serve a congregation. This call was affirmed by significant mentors and friends in my life. And a few months later, I resigned my position at a college in Pennsylvania and moved temporarily to Arizona, uh, thinking that I would just be here a few months until I received a call by a church and moved on. Well, for the past four years, I have applied to over 200 pastor positions. The number is climbing probably more over 250 by now. The fruit of all of my hours spent searching the internet, preparing resumes and cover letters and applications, all the fruit of all that labor has been 11 interviews. Out of those 11 interviews, some of which I was a finalist and interviewed in person, I have received zero job offers. Now the bright spot in all of this is that I've been here with you in this time. First I was serving as a member and then I was asked to serve as the interim associate pastor and then to stay on as a part-time care pastor. But all the while in these years I have been constantly searching for a call to full-time call to congregation. Now during these years of searching I've also had two chaplaincy jobs. Um, a non-renewable one-year contract at the hospital, and then seven months working for hospice, and I was laid off from my hospice job in September. All told, I have spent 19 months of the last three years unemployed, uh, and then underemployed to the point of not making a living wage. So imagine uh, the tension of having this strong, clear call from God to go and serve a congregation only to experience years of deprivation. Maybe this has happened to you in one way or another. For me, it's been a difficult pilgrimage through a spiritual desert. It's broken down my confidence. It's battered my self-worth. It's caused me to consider leaving ministry to do something that seemed to have a clear plan, like, Go to school and be a massage therapist or an x-ray tech. Those are good things, and um, you kind of sign up, and you pay, and you do it. Um, Seems a little easier. And then there were the weeks and months where I felt lost, confused, angry at myself. You know, It was totally irrational sometimes because none of this whole thing made sense to me. There were Sundays that I would come, and I would sit in these pews, and I really couldn't Um, do anything but cry, Uh, would read the words on the screen, and Ryan would be leading us in worship, and all I could do was sit in silence. I know how difficult the Christian life is. I have been walking through my own dangerous hill country for four years, but I can stand here before you today and preach, not as a hypocrite giving lip service to a God I hardly believe in anymore so I can collect some cash, but as a pilgrim who lives real life in the real world, and who has discovered real truth. In the darkest days of this path, my prayer has simply been this, that God would console me. You see, I don't need God to be like Santa Claus who stuffs my life with shiny things that I want but don't need. And I know that God is not a magic wand-toting fairy godmother who instantly changes my life from soot and rags to a ball at a castle. I live in the real world. It's messy, smelly, scary, it's full of sinners and evil, and I don't expect it to be easy. But I confess to you that there was a part of me that never thought it would be this difficult either. Broken, weary, I have encountered one, one truth that has been like Lake Superior to my shriveled spirit. Yahweh is my keeper. Though I've been exhausted, God has never, never tired of showing me that he loves me and that he is with me. He breathed his love on me through a sermon that Alyssa Brooks Dowdy teached two years ago on Hagar uh, to a group of women. It wasn't for me. I was just there and God breathed on me. And the times when I've come so close to giving up this call to ministry, God put people like Jim Blackburn and Bruce Heimke's and Sherry Cross in front of me at like the strategic exact moments I needed them. And each one of them put their hands on my shoulders and they said, don't give up. You are on God's path. It's like it was a conspiracy. Ministering to some of you. And seeing you find new life and healing and peace, those times are like Hansel and Gretel snacks. They're like manna from heaven spread out like a trail, leading me through my own dangerous hill country. God has used you, people of Hope Covenant Church, to renew my strength for my own pilgrimage, to prove to me that He is with and for me, that He is my keeper. When I have lacked faith for this journey, I have borrowed yours. I am in a good place, really. Um, I come here now on most Sundays and I sing at the top of my lungs because I'm clinging to this one truth that Yahweh is my keeper and I am filled with energy and hope and that is a miracle. I'm not kidding, it's a miracle because here I am again, unemployed, still following after a call I received four years ago. I'm either stupid, chasing a mirage, or God is good and I'm growing in faith. The Lord is my keeper. I won't give up. The Lord is your keeper. He will keep your life. Do you believe that? Eight years ago, I was about to finish up seminary. I was in my last semester, and I went on a spiritual retreat. Uh, It was a weekend, and during a worship service, the leader asked us a series of questions that were directed to us from God. And the question that pierced my soul was, Will you trust me? Psalm 121 teaches us that the real threat to a successful pilgrimage is not the danger along the way, and it is not God's resolve or ability to protect us. God's very nature is love. His power created everything from the heavens to the earth, and he will keep us now and forever. That is his promise to us. So the biggest threat to a successful pilgrimage is whether or not we will trust him. Yahweh will keep you, but will you keep him? I've had so many friends abandon their faith, run away from God when life got too confusing or too difficult or too fill in the blank. Now that doesn't mean that God abandons them. I mean, what I know about God from the Bible means that he is chasing after them like a single lost sheep, doing everything he can to bring them back into his presence, to have them acknowledge that he is with them. But when life gets too confusing or too difficult or too fill in the blank, that is when you need to stick to the path, to stay in the fold and to cling to the shepherd, Jesus. Borrow the faith of the believers around you who have survived their pilgrimage before you. Ask for help, seek wise counsel, Fall at God's feet and cry out for him to console you or whatever you think you need. Ask him to revive you by the breath of the Holy Spirit, to be a light that shows you the way in darkness, to gift you with faith, to be people of the way. Most of all, make your pilgrimage knowing that Yahweh is your keeper, that he is with and for you always and knowing that you are blessed. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let's pray about these things.